It's weird to get a phone call from Molly Ringwald, especially when you don't know Molly Ringwald. But one day, way back in 1991, when I was still living in L.A., my phone rang. Hello? Hello, Jim. Yes? This is Molly Ringwald. Of course, my first thought was that it was bullshit, but it really sounded like her, so I decided to play along. Hi, Molly. How are you? Good, thanks. Hey, the reason I'm calling is I'm having an Oscar party at my house, and I'd like to invite you if you can make it. If this was bullshit, it was very well done bullshit. I mean, who impersonates Molly Ringwald? Oh, by the way, I should say, you don't know me, but I'm Jim Walker, and this is Record. Anyway, I continued to play along. Sure, Molly, I'd love to come. Thanks. Great, here's my address. I hung up and stood in the living room of my apartment, confused. That really sounded like Molly Ringwald. I started racking my brain trying to think of any reason in the world Molly Ringwald would have invited me to her house. I thought and I thought, then bam, it came to me. A couple of months previous, someone had told me that they thought one of our mutual friends had just started dating Molly Ringwald, but I never heard anything more about it. Anyway, that turned out to be it. My friend was dating Molly, and through her, had invited me to her Oscar party. So I went. She had a beautiful place up Mulholland Drive. She answered the door, gave me a beer, and introduced me to the other guests. There were only five or six people there. My friend wasn't there yet. Molly told me that he'd gotten tied up somewhere and she expected him any minute. So I hung out in Molly's living room, watching the red carpet with Molly's exquisite friends. I sat there and, try as I might, could not think of a single thing to say. They were all really nice, but I mean, what the fuck was I doing there? Meanwhile, an hour went by and my friend was still a no-show. Just an absolutely awkward situation. Molly was very sweet to me, though. So sweet, in fact... But I began to think to myself, yeah, I think I could totally date Molly Ringwald. Fuck my tardy friend. I'm here now. Plus, she had an amazing CD collection that took up the entire front closet of her foyer. I could see the two of us, Molly and I, standing in front of that closet, choosing CDs together, staying in for the evening. Suddenly the doorbell rang, evaporating my Molly fantasy. Molly said it was probably my friend. The door opened, and I heard a thick Irish accent ask if my friend was there. Molly said no, but she was expecting him any minute. Then she said, come in, Adam, we're watching the Oscars. The Irish voice said he couldn't because he was off to the airport with the band. I craned my head around to see who was at the door, and standing there was Adam Clayton, the bass player for U2. Huh? he was sorry he missed him, but he had something for him. They went outside. Molly shut the door. I continued with the most uncomfortable day of my life. A few minutes later, Molly came back in. You guys aren't going to believe this. Come out here. We all went out to the front yard. Sitting in the driveway was a Maserati. It was painted emerald green with sparkly glitter in the paint. Hideous. A crime against the car. Turns out, old Adam bought this car to tool around L.A. in. Now he was going back to Ireland, so he gave the car to my friend who wasn't there. No one could believe it. Yeah, Adam just took off in a cab, Molly said. We all went back in the house, but I'd really run out of gas. I had no more small talk in me. I've been there about two and a half hours with no sign at all of my friend. No call, no nothing. Pre-cell phone days. So I got up, thanked Molly, and went home. Of course, when I got back to the house, there was a message from my friend, all mad that I'd left, and also wondering what the fuck he was supposed to do with the world's ugliest Maserati. Everyone's problems are different, I guess. Growing up, I didn't have to worry about Maseratis or fabulous homes. We lived in the suburbs, and my family struggled to maintain middle class. They were always just about to drop off that status. I had no idea how tight money was then. My folks kept that stuff from my sister and I. 
I did notice that while my friends and their families would go on vacations to the East Coast and maybe Europe once in a while, my family rarely traveled. And when we did go somewhere, it was usually camping, up Angeles Crest Highway to Chileo Flats or Big Bear or up north to Mammoth. Once in a while when the folks were feeling flush, we'd drive to Vegas for a few days. We went to Carson City and Reno, but really that was it. Aside from the financial reasons for not traveling, my parents, God bless them, were also very provincial. They didn't have much of a curiosity about the rest of the world. So in turn, for a long time, neither did I. I lived in LA and I figured I pretty much had all I needed right there. Beaches, mountains, the desert, nightlife, entertainment, all that. People moved away from places so they could live in Los Angeles. I didn't think there was much beyond it. I loved LA. Then something happened. It wasn't a huge, shattering thing. It was a small thing. A nothing. It happened in late 1990. I was at my folks' house, having dinner, hanging out, watching TV. There were commercials on for the Ken Burns documentary, The Civil War. It sounded interesting to me, and as we weren't really watching anything special, I asked the folks if they'd like to watch it. My dad squinted his eyes and furrowed his brow. Hell no, put on Hawaii. I knew from past experience that put on Hawaii meant he wanted to watch Magnum P.I. He did the same thing with M.A.S.H. Put on Korea, he'd say. So he nixed watching the Civil War, which wasn't all that surprising. But the next thing that happened really alarmed me. Dad picked up the remote and started flipping channels. My mom looked over at me and, somewhat sheepishly, said, Hey Jim, who won the Civil War anyway? I thought she was kidding, but then I knew she wasn't. Before I could answer her, my dad yelled out in all sincerity, Goddamn America, that's who! He was completely serious. It occurred to me, in that moment, that my parents were a couple of boobs. Like dumbasses. Who won the Civil War? Goddamn America! Are you fucking kidding me? I mean, bless their hearts, they're my parents and all, but goddamn, that's next level stupid. That shit should go in a time capsule. It was this little nothing of an event that made me reevaluate everything. My upbringing, my beliefs, my own education. I started to ask myself a lot of questions. What did I want out of life? I didn't really know. Once I was helping a friend's father, a very successful guy at a huge ad agency in LA, move a table since I had a pickup truck. We picked up the table and we were driving back to his house when he asked me, So Jim... What do you want to do with your life? I said, I don't know. He asked me if I could pull the truck over. Huh? Okay. I pulled over. He turned to look at me, then said, Forgive me for saying so, but I think that's a bunch of bullshit. He kept staring at me. I realized suddenly that this guy was really scary. Okay, I said. You can go now, he said. We drove. It was uncomfortable. That moment, though, made me start down a path, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. What kind of adult did I want to be? I didn't know that either, but I sure as shit wanted to have who won the Civil War on the shelf, for Christ's sakes. Did I want to be smarter, or was this good enough? Once when I was about 20, I went to my friend Eric's house, and he was sitting in the living room reading a book about the human heart. I asked him why he was reading that. He said because he was interested in it. That seemed pretty reasonable, but that was not something I was familiar with. Reading. I thought reading ended when your formal education ended. It never struck me that you could read for pleasure or to self-improve. And did I want to travel? That's one that never occurred to me. I'd always had some kind of job ever since I was 16 on my dad's insistence. But the jobs were all dead-end things. Dishwasher, busboy, janitor, like that. So I never made enough money to do much, let alone travel. Any dough I made went straight back into my band with music gear, mailing lists, and instrument repair. When you play music, something always needs buying, and something is always broken. Even if I'd had the money to travel, I wasn't really sure where I'd want to go.
Fresh out of high school and hot on the heels of my manual labor jobs, I got what seemed to me to be a real job. First working the cash register and then managing a record store. It was a good job because I was around music all day, every day. I also cleaned the toilets so it wasn't that great. The owners of the place had five different stores, a little chain. The employees would bop back and forth as needed between the stores. I worked with some really great people there, like Robin, who was a wonderful woman. I just dug the hell out of her. We all called her Robin, Bobbin, Hemoglobin, Staubin, Tootsie Pie, Honey Bunch. I don't know why, and I can't remember who started it, but it stuck. Robin, Bobbin, Hemoglobin, Staubin, Tootsie Pie, Honey Bunch. My other friend at the record store was Steve, who wore the same Aussie for President shirt every single day. He really liked that Aussie. Me too. Customers used to come in all the time with these vague questions like, Hi, I was listening to the radio, and this song came on, and I can't remember the title, but it was about love. And our job was to figure out what song they were talking about. This was around 1984, so of course there was no Google. But being that I already had a mind for music trivia and things like that, I took it upon myself to become the Google. I started listening to the radio constantly, and I knew more or less every song on the Billboard Hot 100. So when I got those kinds of questions, I heard this song, it was kind of slow, it was about coins or something. I'd ask, sung by a man or a woman? They'd say, man? I'd say, Penny Lover by Lionel Richie? That's it! It was all very exciting. I loved being that guy, the come-through guy. Customers began asking for me specifically because I knew so much about that stuff. Also, being a budding songwriter, I was getting a quick education on what made a song a song, what made it appealing, whether it was pop, R&B, or some hair metal band. I started incorporating what I was learning into my own writing, trimming off all the unnecessary stuff and getting right to the heart of what I was trying to say as quickly as possible. I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote, and I sucked. And then I got better. I did these long shifts at the record stores, sometimes 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. When I got hungry, I was pretty much out of luck because A, I was broke all the time like most young people, B, I was usually working alone and couldn't close up the shop to get a bite, and C, there was no food places around anyway, at least none that I could afford. I never thought about just bringing something to eat. That required forethought. Too much work. The store in Laurel Canyon was my favorite because it was right by Taco Bell. And back then, much like now, you can feed your raging animal at that place for just a few bucks. One evening about 6 p.m., I was there at the Laurel Canyon store watching copies of Thriller and Van Halen 1984 fly out the door at an alarming rate when I realized I hadn't eaten all day. I shooed all the customers out the door, locked up, ran across the parking lot, got my bell on, and shoved it in my face hole. Then, as the evening wore on, I started to get this feeling. It's a special feeling. You've had it. When something just ain't sitting right. You feel warm, but your skin's clammy, and your stomach starts doing the herbly burblies. You get kind of lightheaded, and you think to yourself, God help me. Here it comes. Lucky indeed, just before my body reached DEFCON 1. No need to go into any description here. You know what happened. Suffice it to say, I was doing 360s, praying for death, and running for the border for about nine hours. I took the next day off to recover, just feeling about as precious as one can be. One of those six where you touch your own skin and go, oh, mommy. About 4 p.m. that afternoon, I just started to feel a little bit better when my girlfriend Linda called. She asked if I was ready to follow her to the mechanic so she could drop her car off, something I'd agreed to do a couple days before. I hadn't yet had a chance to tell Linda about my little end-over-end T-bell event yet, and had I told her right then, she likely would have told me just to rest up and she'd reschedule her appointment. But I was feeling a little better and I wanted to rally. I said, yeah, see you in a few. I followed her 1965 Volkswagen Bug in my 1976 Chevy van, rad, down to Glendale. I was feeling okay. 
I was listening to a cassette of Elvis Costello's Imperial Bedroom for the first time. I'd stolen it a couple days before from the store. Oh yeah, remember Steve, the Aussie for President guy? Well, Steve and I used to rob the record store blind. We'd load out grocery bags of cassettes, albums, CDs, whatever we could grab we took. But hold on, before you think too much less of me, let me backpedal for a moment. I would have never dreamed of doing anything like that if the owners had been cool, or even slightly respectful of their employees. But they were complete and total assholes. They treated the employees terribly, overworked everyone, yelled and screamed and threatened and terrorized us, and generally made working there very, very uncomfortable. One night I was working alone and there were no customers in the store, so I was reading a magazine. I heard the door buzzer go off, but I didn't immediately look up. Suddenly there was something cold and hard pressed at my temple. I looked up, and the owner's son, Jimmy, had a loaded thirty-eight at the side of my head. "'Hey, man, you should be paying more attention,' he said with a southern accent, even though he grew up in California. "'California rednecks. That's a special breed of shithead.' "'You better put that gun down unless you're going to use it,' I said. I felt kind of like I was in a film noir. He laughed and put the piece back in his shoulder holster. What a douchebag. Those were the kind of guys the owners were. Raging fucking bone rods.' So they deserved everything they had coming to them. I have no regrets. And I have a whole lot of albums. So I'm there in the van, listening to my pilfered copy of Imperial Bedroom, following Linda's Volkswagen. The song playing was And in Every Home. I remember that vividly because I couldn't listen to it for a couple of years after the next thing that happened. You turn to the sense when you get the Sliding down the best in your Sunday I started to black out, going 45 miles an hour in traffic. That's not that good. I swerved into the next lane, always going dark. Luckily, I didn't hit anyone. I tried to pull over, swooning, barely conscious, but there was no emergency lane, nothing to pull over into. Then the blackout kind of passed as quickly as it had come. I was still following Linda, and I hadn't killed anyone. Okay, I guess we're good. On the next block was the auto shop. We parked. Linda hopped out. I hobbled out of the van. She said, hey, what's wrong with you? I told her I was just a little dizzy and I was going to nap out for a minute while she dealt with the car. She looked at me, a little skeptical, turned and headed into the shop. Right next door to the auto shop was a liquor store. I figured all this dizziness was probably just dehydration, so I went in to get a bottle of water. I walked into the liquor store, and whammo, the dizziness came back full force. The last thing I remember is looking up at the owner's face and him saying, Hey, buddy, you all right? You know those displays in liquor stores where they stack up all the liquor bottles into like a pyramid shape? Well, I passed out while walking and fell face first into one of those. Jack Daniels. Everything was broken glass and booze. And the next thing I knew, I was being beaten to a pulp. Blood in my eyes, someone punching me, kicking me, yelling at me. Even in my helpless state, I suddenly saw what the store owner saw. A weird guy stumbling into the store, out of it, and unresponsive to questions. A drunken moron. Then the guy falls into your Jack Daniels display, breaking everything. Well, that's a drunken moron that needs his teeth kicked in. So he was coming from an I'm-gonna-kill-this-guy angle. And there wasn't a thing I could do about it. This guy was just knocking the hell out of me, and I couldn't raise a paw in my defense. He grabbed me by the hair, dragged me out on the sidewalk, calling me every name in the book. Then he started kicking me in the stomach and ribs. It was at that moment, Linda came back around the corner. That must have been quite a sight for her. I mean, I was supposed to be catching 40 winks in the van, and instead, here I was covered in glass, blood, and booze being pummeled on the sidewalk by a very angry man. I remember looking into her face and trying to imagine what was going on in her head. And even in all my pain, it was funny. It's funnier now, though. A few days later, back there at the record store, there was an incident. 
I'd just arrived for my 5 to 10 p.m. shift, only to be informed that my good friend Robin Bobbin had been fired. And fired for no reason other than she was making a bit more money than all the other cashiers. The store wasn't doing particularly well, which may have been due to the fact that Steve and I had most of the inventory in our bedrooms. So they were downsizing staff. But unfortunately, Robin was costing them the most. So poof, she was gone. I was furious and guilty, feeling like I may have had something to do with all of it. Robin deserved to make more money. She'd been there longer than anyone, and she was the manager. Plus, the woman was raising a 10-year-old kid by herself. Fine, but if you fire her, I quit. That's what I said to Jimmy, the boss's son. I was so angry I was shaking. So quit. That's what Jimmy said to me. And we glared at each other. A standoff. It was the Pacoima store. It was summer. The air conditioner hummed. Look, Jimmy, she's got it hard enough. Don't do this to her, please. I was trying to appeal to Jimmy's humanity. I figured he must have some shoved down in there somewhere. It's done. Get back to work, he said. I was trying to get this Neanderthal to look inside his heart. Okay, how about this? Fire me instead, okay? She needs the job more than I do, I said. I said it's done. Conversation's over. He picked up his briefcase to leave. All right, then I quit, I said. I felt a tiny surge of pride. Fine, call the front office and give him your two weeks then, he said. No, right now, as of now, I quit, I said. Jimmy's mouth dropped. You can't do that. Who's going to work tonight, he said. That's your problem. And I grabbed my keys and wallet and strode out the door. I was getting in my truck when the record store door flew open. Hey, man, you can forget about picking up your last paycheck, Jimmy said. Whatever, I said. And I laid rubber out of the parking lot, leaving Jimmy and his job in the rearview mirror. And I felt pretty good about myself. For about two minutes. That's when I realized, in a moment of sheer horror, that I now had no source of income. It was also at that moment, going through my mental shortlist of options, that I realized I had no viable skills at all. None. Whatsoever. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't do anything. I never paid attention at school. I dropped out of community college because it was boring. And here I was. Ta-da! Yeah, I played the guitar and sang okay, but this was L.A. Throw a rock and you'd hit somebody who played and sang a hundred times better than me. And then the pricklies went up my neck. Oh boy, this was a fine kettle of fish. Nice going, Jim. After a few days of racking my brain trying to figure out how to get my mitts on some loot, I had a thought. I like to drive. And I was good at it. Maybe I could be a professional truck driver? There were commercials on TV at the time for the Wally Thorpe School of Trucking. Yeah, that'd be me. Jim Walker. A truck driving man. You've heard songs about truck drivers many times. Me in a big rig, seeing America, getting a job done, writing songs about the road and Purple Mountain's majesties and all that shit. Maybe I'd even get a dog to keep me company. Name it Boo or something. Eh, it was a nice little thought. But I was so broke I didn't even have the dough to lay out for the schooling. I barely had enough money to put gas in my own truck. Well, then I thought, maybe I could get a job using my own truck. And that's how I came to be a paper boy in my 20s. I got a job delivering the LA Times in my faithful Toyota pickup truck. It wasn't exactly what I'd set my sights on with the whole driving thing, but the money was okay. I'd be working by myself, and I love the hours. 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. Those are good thinking kind of hours. I could make up songs as I drove since there was no one around to distract me from my thoughts. I wasn't counting on Lester. I'll get to him in a minute. On my very first night as a paperboy, I met Sid. Sid was supposed to ride in the car with me for a couple nights and show me the route. Sid was about 60, originally from Philly, and he smelled of ham. Not an unpleasant odor, as odors go, but just as you start enjoying it, you realize it's coming off of a person, and nothing about that is right. I tried to make a little chit-chat with Sid in the truck, but he wasn't much interested. He barely said anything at all other than, Turn right here. Or, back into this driveway, it's easier. 
We'd been working together chucking papers, mostly in silence, for about three hours, when Sid let out a big sigh. <sighs> Here comes the moonlight, he said. I looked out the window for the moon, but then realized Sid was talking about the street name, Moonlight Drive. I found the address of the throw in my root book and drove quietly down the long driveway that led to a gorgeous three-story house. The drive had a turnaround with a fountain in the center, like some movie. There were at least five beautiful cars parked near the house. A couple of Porsches, Mercedes, I think there was even a DeLorean. Another long sigh escaped Sid. Look at all these happy horseshit cars. Sid shook his head and rolled his eyes. I'd never heard the phrase happy horseshit before. I liked it. I made a mental note to immediately upload it into my everyday vocabulary. Jesus, Sid said under his breath. I threw the paper onto the front porch and began backing slowly out of the driveway. Sid spoke again. The guy that owns this house? I used to stab his wife now and again. Sid now had my full attention. If that fucking guy knew I was the guy delivering his paper, forget about it. He'd have a fucking coronary. That's one of the reasons I gotta get out of here. Bunch of happy horse shit. And that was the last time Sid spoke that night. A couple months later, I was in a different neighborhood throwing the papers. And at this point, I wasn't loving the job so much. What I thought would be great hours for me, there in the still of the night, ended up sucking because I'd have to sleep during the day. Or try to sleep was more like it. The sun was up, people were doing things, dogs were barking, traffic, the phone would ring. It was no good. Plus, we were getting into the short but messy rainy season in L.A., and that added a whole new dynamic to the life of Paperboy. Every paper had to be bagged and rubber-banded, adding an extra couple of hours in the warehouse to the front of the night, but you still had to get the papers there by 6 a.m. In the truck, plastic bags slid around everywhere, slipping all over, under the accelerator, the brakes, and right out the window if they were stacked too high on the seat. It sucked. And don't even get me started on the Sunday edition. The only thing that was saving me night after tedious night was the radio. Music felt like the only friend I could really count on at that point. The music kept me going, and it was during those dark and dismal nights that I realized I had no choice but to dedicate the rest of my life to it. One of the houses I was headed to on that night was new to my route. It was in a cul-de-sac with another one of those very long driveways. There was a lot of those in that part of town. I remember thinking to myself how quiet that particular street was that night, how calm and pleasant. It was a warm night, a break from the rain, and I drove with both windows open. The crickets were chirping, a dog barked in the distance. Real nice. I drove down to the end of the driveway, sailed the paper onto the stoop, and backed out. Just before I reached the end of the driveway, I felt a presence right next to my head. I turned to my left. There was a face about three inches from mine, and it screamed. I wish I could adequately describe to you the scream, the face, and just how bad this scared me. The scream turned everything inside my body to a cold paste, and I felt like I was falling. The scream and its volume nearly stole the air from my lungs. The man who belonged to the face was about six feet tall, huge, bald head with his hands outstretched to me. He looked like Michael Myers. After letting the scream out, he began to wail and sob hysterically. It was absolutely one of the most shocking things I've ever seen. Reflex kicked in, and I slammed my right foot down on the gas pedal. I left a long black smoking tire mark in front of me as the world went by in reverse. The man just stood there at the end of the driveway, screaming and howling. Me? I just kept going backwards. And I wasn't in any real hurry to stop going backwards. I was about 50 feet away in the middle of the cul-de-sac when my fear changed to rage, and I slammed the brakes on. I leaned my head out the window and took a good look at the guy. What the fuck? I screamed. A window opened up on the second floor of the house he was standing in front of. An older woman poked her head out. Lester! Leave that man alone. He's the paper boy. And Lester put his hands at his sides and walked quietly toward the house, not looking back at me. I just sat there, breathing hard, the stink of burnt rubber in my nose, and I watched Lester disappear into the black of the house. I drove straight to the Times office and told him that was it. I quit. No more paper boy for me. They could have this screwy gig. 
crazy screams and rain bags and ham. Fuck it. Then I drove home, crawled into bed, and slept in a darkened room for the first time in months. Happy horseshit, I tried to say to the moan, but I was already asleep. Another shot at being truck driver Jim presented itself a few weeks later. This is your hand truck, Jim. It's your best friend, said the man who looked like Sean Connery. Uncannily so. Uh-huh, I said. It was 7.30 in the morning and still fairly cool, but I knew the afternoon was going to be fierce with heat and smog. Pasadena in July wasn't very forgiving. It was my first day at my new job, driving a large box van for a chain of pharmacies. I was eager to learn what was expected of me so I could just hit the road and get out of there. Instead, though, I was getting explicit instructions from James Bond on how to use a goddamn dolly. I hope I don't need to tell you to bend your knees when you lift, Jim, he said. No, I got it, I said. So here I was, a few weeks after bottoming out as a paperboy on this new driving gig. I was still convinced that I wanted to drive for a living, and, well, driving a delivery truck was kind of a start. And it was a whole lot better than telling people I was a paperboy in my 20s. That was a special kind of feeling. The pharmacy, where I was being trained, hand truck lessons, was the head office for the chain. By the looks of the route map I'd been given, they had stores all over Southern California. The pharmacy was called Junt's Pharmacy. After a couple of weeks working there, I'd be calling it another name that rhymed. Make sure you distribute your weight evenly at the hips when you lift. Do you have a back brace? Sean said. Uh, not really, I said. Well, you're going to need one. We can give you the employee discount on one here at the store, said the Connery clone. Hot dog, I thought to myself. Dumb as it may sound, I had something of a vision for myself when I took this job. I figured I'd be sort of like a frontiersman in a way, like a Pony Express rider or something. I'd pack up my trusty steed with necessary and needful parcels, braving all odds and elements to reach my destinations. Medicine to the sick, crutches to the lame, aspirators to the asthmatic. Well, let's get you packed up and out of here. We stepped inside the back door of the building, which led to the warehouse. That's when I first laid eyes on the precious and important cargo I'd be hauling. Cases upon cases of snack foods and soda pop. Bring your hand truck around here now and load up these ten cases of screaming yellow zonkers. Those go to the Chatsworth store. Oh, Jesus, I thought. Now these five cases of poppycock go to the Watts store, these fifty cases of Diet Shasta go out to Diamond Bar, and these ten cases of Hershey Bars plus another eleven cases of Fiddle Faddle go to downtown L.A. Wait a minute, I thought. Watts? Diamond Bar? Chatsworth? These places were a million miles from each other. It was like driving a triangle around the middle of Southern California. And downtown, too? Geez, I wouldn't be sailing down the highway at all. I'd be spending the entire day fighting stop-and-go L.A. street traffic. I just hoped the damn truck had a radio. Normally, I'd go out with you on your first day to show you the ropes, but I have some things to attend to. This is Phil. He'll be riding with you today. Sean sauntered off. Phil was the warehouse guy, about 30, paunchy, eyes at half-mast, sort of a frozen bulldog expression on his face. Hey, how's it going, man? He said, extending a hand with two fingers missing. It didn't fill me with confidence that my road guard had a couple of lopped-off digits, but we got in the truck and headed out. There was a radio in the truck. It got one station. Oldies from the 50s, 60s, and early 70s. The first couple of store deliveries went off without a hitch. The third one, downtown, not so much. John Fogarty was wondering who'd stop the rain when Phil produced a joint from his shirt pocket. You want some? He said. No, thanks, I said. What, like you don't smoke or what? Not really, but thanks. Okay, dude, more for me, Phil said with a grin. Downtown LA is a fabulous place to try and drive around in, and I guess I got a little distracted and evidently, I became forgetful about the exact size of the truck I was driving. Also, could have been I was getting a contact high from Phil. I went to make a right turn at a busy corner. I cut it way too close. 
Crunch. Uh-oh. What the fuck are you doing, said Phil. Hey, you dumb son of a bitch, someone I nearly killed yelled from the corner. Crunch. Whoosh. I looked over at the passenger side mirror just in time to see the hydrant I ran over erupt in a glorious geyser of glee. Hey, you fucking idiot! The people on the corner, who were now getting soaked, were clearly not pleased with me. I braked. A guy in a sopping wet suit punched the back of the truck and began marching up to the passenger side window. What are you doing? Go! yelled Phil. Shouldn't we stop? Fuck no! I got weed, dude! Go! 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 said Phil. And I put my foot down on the accelerator hard as I could and sped away from the scene of the crime. In the side mirror, I saw people back there screaming at us, flipping us the bird, angry and wet. And off we tore, careening down the busy street, Maybelline blasting away, pot smoke pouring out the windows. It was like a Cheech and Chong movie. For the entire rest of the day, I was sure there was an APB out on me. But nothing had happened to us by the time we returned to Junt's pharmacy at the end of the day. Mr. Connery met us at the back door of the loading dock. How did he do, Phil? Sean asked like I wasn't there. Great, he's a natural. Good, glad to hear. Hey, wait a minute now. What's this? I felt my heart rate increase. I gulped like Scooby in the haunted house. The right fender had a big dent in it. What happened here? My mind was a blank. Phil exchanged a look with me. Then he spoke. Must have been those kids, Jim. Remember those kids we saw monkeying around with the front of the truck when we came out of the Carson's store, I said, picking up the thread of his lie. Phil chased him away. Gosh, I'm really sorry about that. Can you take it out of my pay or something, I said. Sean rubbed his chin. Well, it's not your fault, Jim. Phil here says you're doing a great job. It's those damn kids' fault. Those little rats. Always did hate Carson. A crummy town. And he slipped back into the warehouse. Time went by. I delivered things. I accidentally memorized the Billboard 500. I learned every square inch of the LA freeway system. Eventually, I knew it like the back of my hand. I used to drive around on weekends and try to get lost. I couldn't. And by the way, when I finally quit that job two years later, through osmosis, I'd memorize the words to every song that was a hit between 1957 and 1971, whether I liked it or not. It sure came in handy being in a band. You guys know The Letter by the Box Tops? Yep. You guys know Domino by Van Morrison? Yep. You guys know Burning Love by Elvis Presley? Yep. We knew them all. Speaking of quitting that job, here's what brought it on. It was a couple years later I'd parked the truck, and I was staring at the Watts Towers, thinking, I can't do this anymore. I sat across the street from the towers, shielding my eyes with my hand from the hammering sun. I really shouldn't have been in that neighborhood. It was pretty rough, and I was the wrong color. But I'd been delivering to a pharmacy right down the street for about a year and a half. I'd seen those towers in pictures, and I knew they were close by. So after my delivery, I drove over. This guy, Sabato Rodia, just sort of started building the things one day. These tall structures reaching to the sky. He built out of steel scrap pipes and old rebar. He kept adding onto them for 33 years, decorating them with stuff he found until he gave the property away and moved. Now it's a protected historical site. They are really amazing to see up close. I sat there in my truck and I thought about this guy who just woke up one day and devoted himself to something like that. His quote about the towers was, I had in mind to do something big, and I did it. And then I thought about myself there, in the stupid truck, delivering screaming yellow zonkers and hemorrhoid cream from pharmacy to pharmacy all over LA, wasting time, wasting my life. And I realized I just couldn't do it anymore. I drove back to the main store, handed my boss the keys, and told him I had to quit. He tried to talk me out of it, offered up a raise and whatnot, but I wanted out. 
and there was nothing he could say to change my mind. I wanted to be a songwriter and a performer. Call me a pretentious little twat. But I wanted to be an artist, okay? That's what I wanted to do with my life, and damn it, that's just what I was going to do. Two months later, eating ramen in my hovel apartment, when I'd stretched my savings so thin I could see through them, and was suffering total writer's block because I couldn't make ends meet, I thought perhaps I'd been a little hasty quitting my truck job. Just at the point when I was getting ready to go completely down the toilet, my friend Joanna called me to tell me about a job. Want to drive a truck? She asked. Yes, I would, I said. And with that, the artist shook his head and took a sad look back at me, then moped away into the shadows. For a while, anyway. The job Joanna had for me was at a place called Simply Fresh Fruit. They supplied bulk fruit to market chains. The folks in the deli section would put it into their fruit trays or fruit salad or wherever else they wanted to stick some fruit. The way the job was described to me was this. I'd be picking up fruit from the downtown produce mart every weekday. I'd deliver it back to Simply Fresh, where it would then be sliced and diced. It would then be loaded into five-gallon containers and repacked onto pallets. I would then shrink-wrap the pallets, load them back on the truck, and deliver them to markets all around the Los Angeles metropolitan area. Joanna assured me I'd be home by 3 p.m. every day. Sounded pretty easy to me. So I took the job. It was only later when I thought to myself, hmm, downtown produce mart, that I started connecting all the dots of this gig. First of all, downtown LA, at least back in the early 90s, was not like a real downtown at all. It wasn't a place that lent itself well to hanging out and having fun. It was a place where people would go to work in an office or store, and at 5 p.m. they'd get the hell out of there as fast as they could. It was scary after dark. Homeless, gangs, crime. Not a friendly place. I hear it's different now. Safer. But I don't know from now. I only know from then. Secondly, the goddamn traffic. It was a nightmare. I asked Joanna what time I'd need to be there in order to avoid the hellish morning rush. Oh, don't worry, you'll avoid it completely. You start at 3 a.m., she said, laughing. Oh, my God. I tried really hard to go to sleep at 8 p.m. the night before my first day on that job. I laid there wide awake until 12.30, then managed to sleep for about an hour and a half till the alarm went off at 2. I wanted to cry. My first duty was to meet the guy who had the job before me so he could show me what to do. I drove on the completely empty Pasadena Freeway to the empty Harbor Freeway through empty downtown following the directions I'd been given. I drove up to the address, a dark parking lot surrounded by a barbed wire fence in an industrial area under a freeway bridge. Oh, nice. I got out of my car and looked around. Nothing. Nobody. It was nearly pitch black and really creepy. The wind blew trash around. Newspapers swirled up and made shadows floating up in front of the dim streetlights. Bottles clinked as the wind rolled them across the pavement. I stood there for about ten minutes or so, wondering what the hell I'd gotten myself into. Then a car came around the corner. Just a little too slow for my taste. You see, a couple of weeks previous to that, I'd been on my way to see Neil Young at the sports arena. Look out, Mama! There's a white Rush hour traffic was always a joke, so I thought I'd be a real smart guy and take some side streets through downtown. I was in the Rampart District, and the sun was just starting to go down. I was sitting at a light at an intersection in a really questionable neighborhood. The car to my east, a lowrider, had the green and started a slow left turn in front of my car. Just a little too slow for my taste. In the car were five intense-looking Latino guys. Shaved heads, wife-beater tank tops, and what looked like jailhouse tattoos. They stared at me as they passed within a few feet of my car. The driver then pulled out a gun and pointed it at my face. For some reason, I just stared at him. Bang, he said and started laughing. Then he put the gun down and drove away. The light changed, and I drove for a few blocks before it sunk in what had happened. I pulled over and I started shaking, and I couldn't stop. It took me several minutes to pull myself together so I could drive. This is what was going through my mind as this car pulled slowly up next to me in the dead of night there in the dark downtown parking lot. You Jim? A voice said from the dark of the car. Yep, I said. I'd never been more relieved to hear the sound of my own name. 
The guy got out of his car and unlocked a padlock on the fence. Then he yanked a squeaking gate back, and we both drove in. He relocked the padlock. The lot was about the size of a school playground, but the only thing in the entire lot was a truck, parked dead center in the middle of it. There were old, burned-out warehouses with broken windows surrounding the parking lot. The wind wheezed. Okay, bud, here's what you do. You start the truck up first, let it run for about 15 minutes, then you turn the cooling unit on. That unit's what keeps the back part of the truck chilly for the fruit. Got it? Yep. Then you let it run for another 45 minutes, and that gets the back section cold. Got it? Yep. The produce market opens at 4.30, and the Simply Fresh crew gets here at 5.30, so you gotta get over to the produce mart early, get your order filled, and get back here before they get here. Got it? Yep. He opened the padlock on the gate, then handed the keys to me. All right, then, here's the keys to the truck, and here's the key to the padlock on the gate. Any questions? Yeah. Why are you quitting? I said. Because this job fucking sucks ass, dude. Later. I stood there, feeling the keys in my hand, and watched him drive away. I hopped in the truck and started it. The engine growled to life. I hated the sound of it immediately. But at that moment, I hated everything. Fifteen minutes later, I turned the cooling unit on. Now I had 45 minutes to do absolutely nothing. I got out of the truck and wandered around. There's not a lot to do at 3.15 in the morning in a desolate parking lot, and my fear and hate quickly gave way to boredom. I was wandering around, listening to the occasional freeway traffic on the bridge above me, shuffling my shoes on the pavement, when I heard the scream. It was shrill, male, and terrifying, like the howl of a banshee. It seemed to have come from about a block away. Then I heard the crash of breaking glass. I jumped back in the truck with my heart beating like a jackrabbit. I did not want to meet the owner of that scream. I sat in the truck with my head down for a half an hour. I'd pop up once in a while to check the side mirrors, certain I'd see Charles Manson reflected there. But nope, he never showed up. At 4.15, I drove to the Produce Mart. This place took up an entire city block and contained every type of fruit and vegetable you could possibly imagine. It was amazing. More amazing to me was that in 15 short minutes, I'd gone from an empty, scary parking lot to one of the most densely populated blocks in the city. Trucks were everywhere. Men were screaming orders to each other. Latino guys loaded truck after truck with plastic containers bursting with bounty. Forklifts moved pallets onto flatbeds. The air was pineapple, oranges, cilantro, and cigarettes. I found the foreman and told him I was the new driver for Simply Fresh. Simply Fresh! He hollered at the ceiling, and guys with hand trucks snapped into action. A half hour later, pallets full of plastic containers were deposited into the truck, and I was on my way back to home base. When I got there, the all-Latina women crew was just arriving. I backed the truck up to the loading dock, and a guy with a forklift took my pallets from the truck. The women all donned blue smocks, and within ten minutes they were seated at stainless steel tables with sharp knives, filling the air with the gab of musical Spanish, chopping the fruit into small bits. These smaller bits were rinsed, then poured into five-gallon jugs. These jugs were placed ten deep onto pallets. When the pallets were full, I'd take the plastic sheeting and wrap the jugs till they were tight together so they wouldn't go flying around in the back of the truck during transit. I had about an hour to kick around and do nothing while waiting for the pallets to get full, so I decided to take a walk and see what was around. Right next door, sharing the same loading dock as Simply Fresh, was the Purina Company. So I waltzed on down the loading dock to check it out. As I approached the Purina warehouse door, the first thing that hit me was the smell. The stink of death and rot. The kind of stink that makes your eyes water and puts your gag reflexes on standby. The door to the factory was wide open, and me being a curious fellow, I walked right in. Huge curtains of graying meat hung up by iron hooks were being loaded into a giant grinding machine. Latino men with masks on eased these carcasses into the vast vat of the machine. I watched for a while. No one seemed to mind. These grinding vats would then spew forth large dirt-colored logs. 
The logs were dropped into another machine with other ingredients, and then put into yet another machine. Somewhere down the conveyor line, the logs became a brown color. Then the logs were sliced while being pooted out of a spigot into tin cans. Then the cans were sealed. Here, boy. Then I walked into another part of the factory on my self-guided tour. This section was the dry food section. If that glop they were putting into cans was the good stuff, you can only imagine how interesting what goes into kibble is. The stench in this part of the building was something completely different. Christ, I could barely stand it. Behind me, a voice said, "'Scuse me, mister.' A man stood there with a wheelbarrow full of meat. It was marbled gray and black and covered with flies. It stunk like you wouldn't believe. I got out of the guy's way and he rolled by me. Printed on the side of the wheelbarrow was the word, Edible. I figured I was starting to overstay my welcome, so I turned to leave. As I was walking out the warehouse door, a retching reek punched me in the nose. A guy was wheeling in a new wheelbarrow filled with something. I peered in as he passed me. It was filled with black, undulating meat goo and maggots. It was all I could do not to hurl. Printed on the side of that wheelbarrow was the word, inedible. Thank goodness for quality control. When my pallets were loaded, I delivered the fruit all around LA, from Diamond Bar to Tarzana, then from Gardena to Buena Park all around L.A. through the miserable traffic and stupidity. I couldn't get that inedible stink out of my nose. I couldn't eat lunch. The picture just kept coming back to me. Good God. When I got back to Simply Fresh, I went to the supervisor and informed him I was quitting. Oh no, already? How come? He asked me. I told him it just wasn't the right fit for me. But what I was thinking was, because this job fucking sucks ass, dude. Later. And that was the end of Trucker Jim. I wondered what my next move was going to be. I started giving guitar lessons, then kind of out of nowhere I got a song in a movie. And while it didn't make me rich, having a credit on a major motion picture gave me a little tiny shred of cred. I had done something. So the door that had always been closed was now slightly ajar. Molly Ringwald. (laughs) 